Welcome to the Double Lift Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Hey, Glenn. I hope everything is going well for you. Are you all set for the uh, Christmas season? I sure am. I'm all done with my gift shopping. Hey. In fact, I've given most of my gifts out. I've already had my holiday party. Frankly, I'm just, I'm cruising to Christmas right now. Oh, wow. No worries. You? Well, I work holiday party, remote holiday party is tomorrow. Oh, and wow. Oh, no. No, it's, it's well, I mean, it's, what, what can you do, right? We're spread across the country. So last year worked out fairly well, actually, with a white elephant gift exchange. Do you just get the gift that you bought for yourself then at the end? You just keep taking your own gift? Is It's, no, it's... It's, it's, there's someone sets up, you know, we have like one of the secretaries has set up like a PowerPoint to like pick gifts and then to kind of keep um, track as to who has what. And then okay. all the gifts are from Amazon and it's just like a picture of them that you pick from. And uh -huh. then after you figure out who is receiving your gift, then you get their address and actually send it to them. I see. Okay. Uh, that is pretty cool. And by the way, I got a very special gift in the mail yes. today from the Eric Ray family. Eric had sent me some wonderful homemade goodies and chocolates and candies and some holiday treats. It was a, a real special surprise. Thanks, Eric. That uh, caught me off guard and delicious. You're, you're quite the confectioner. Well, thank you much. Like I was telling you here before we started recording, the chocolate peanut butter thing is a kind of host homemade Reese's cup in bar form. My family has just made those as far back as I can always remember. Just an easy no-bake recipe. Same with the kind of peanut butter and special K sticky balls and spiced pecans, sugar and cinnamon. And those are the best because they make the house smell like Christmas when you're cooking them. Yeah, your sticky balls and spicy nuts were fantastic. Yes, that, that was a running joke for my entire run at, at my old uh, agency. Everyone liked my, I just absolutely love my nuts. So Excellent. All right, I have a little where in the world for you. Absolutely, let's hear it. Christmas theme too. All right. So this particular country surprised me because there's so many coffee facts and they had yet another coffee fact. The people in this country drink more coffee per capita than any other country. They consume more coffee per year than any other country. It is not unusual to drink eight cups a day there. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. Okay. They're known as land of a thousand lakes, which they actually have 188,000 lakes in the country which I live in Minnesota, we're known as the land of 10,000 yeah. lakes, and we only have around 11,000. So we're slightly under-exaggerating, but they're called the land of 1,000 lakes and 188,000. Sure. Next one is Angry Birds. The game was created there. Mm, okay, I'm narrowing in now. Yeah, okay. Santa Claus has his official home there, which is a village called Rovaniemi. Okay. And finally, they are the land of heavy metal bands. They have more heavy metal bands per capita than any other country. I, I narrowed it down to two, and I think that one helped me kind of narrow it down to one. Uh, I'm going to guess a Sweden. Oh, so close. Oh, is it Finland? It is Finland. Congratulations, <sighs> Finland. Yes, those crazy Finns. My sister-in-law lives in Finland. She moved there about five, six years ago. Oh, I, that um, I did not know. She got twerking in the U.S. and decided to learn Finnish and, and moved there. They are one of the happiest nations, according yeah. to surveys. Yeah, the absolutely. reason 
they're on my mind is because this time of year, I like to watch certain Christmas movies, the classics, you know, Die Hard, Gremlins and Krampus, you know, all all the classics. Uh, but one of my <laughs> rare imports. Exactly. Rare imports. <laughs> it's it's a Finnish movie that is an unexpected joy about <laughs> naked elves chase you down and capture you and take you to the real Santa Claus, which is a 40 foot Krampus looking monster. It's a wonderful joy. I watched it just for the first time finally last year. And, oh, yeah. And ab- yeah, absolutely loved it. Um, yeah. What a fun little weird, weird yeah. movie. It's really cool, though. I, yeah, I really enjoy watching that movie every year. It's one of my Christmas staples. Well, just a reminder for everyone out there listening, if you want to help out the show, you know, please go to patreon.com slash podcast and you know, throw a dollar to our way. It's very helpful in, in letting us keep doing the things that we do. And from running the show, hosting all the servers, setting up our merchandise site on the website, and now you're also you know, having a booth at the II conference each year. All right, Glenn, um, are we ready to move into the uh, the main part of the show? I believe that we are. We have a special guest uh, this, well, for me, it's this evening. For her, it's this afternoon. And uh, she comes all the way from Australia. I had the pleasure of meeting this young dynamo earlier this year when I was in Delft in Holland. We had that biannual conference, IFRG, International Fingerprint Research Group, and she presented there. And I had said to her, hey, we should get you on the podcast to talk about your research. And then when I was recently at the Australian conference at IAFS, IAFS, she was there as well. And she had actually sort of secured or won a keynote presentation, which is actually a pretty big honor. It means that you're doing pretty well. And she's a a young student at the University of Technology in Sydney, the UTS program. And uh, it's just really nice to see an up-and-coming star, and that's kind of what she is. And her name is Tennille Hanna. So we would like to welcome Tennille Hanna all the way from Australia. Welcome, Tennille. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Welcome to the show. We were chatting a little bit before the show. I was making sure I was going to pronounce your name correctly and reference Captain and Tennille. You'd said that you're, you're familiar with this reference. Yeah, definitely. When I was in high school and then I actually worked retail for a really long time with uh, some ladies who were in their middle age and they used to call me captain. So I'm very familiar there with the go. band. That makes yeah. total sense. Yeah, I was worried I would reference would uh, would be a little dated. It's almost too dated for me even, but I'm sure Glenn totally. Oh, yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the songs on the radio. It's his favorite band. <laughs> All right, so let's get into things. Um Glenn, what what were some of the, the topics that you saw, you know, Tennille present you? Where, where do you want to start? Sure. Well, why don't we start with a little bit of background? Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Tennille, if you would, why don't you tell us a little about, about your program and why you chose to go into a forensic science academic program? So I actually had a very different start at UTS. I actually originally started with medical science when I was in high school. If you'd met me when I was in like year 11 and 12, I kept telling everyone I was going to be a neurosurgeon. So that dream is uh, very, very far away now. <laughs> but I went and did medical science and I really did not enjoy it. I realized I would not be good in medical school. And I actually took an elective here, uh, one of our first electives that we do. It's called Principles of Forensic Science. And I enjoyed it so much that I actually swapped degrees into the Bachelor of Forensic Science. And it was kind of like a 
slippery slope down into what I'm enjoying now. And I did an internship. I got an opportunity to do it with some of the lecturers here. And I haven't turned back since. I haven't mm. moved on from fingerprinting. Would we yet. know the instructor of that course? Yes, Sebastian. Uh, Seb. Who is my current supervisor. Yes. Yeah. Yes, Sebastian was a student at the University of Lausanne when I was there. He was in one of the cubicles near me. So we were sort of going through our PhD programs together. Seb or Sebastian. Yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah, he's absolutely wonderful. We unfortunately lost him to the law that is Europe. Everybody wants to go to Europe from Australia, but he's very sadly missed. But he's still here. He's still my supervisor. I clutched onto him and made sure he stayed. That's fantastic. All right. So he somehow convinced you this is a this is the way. <laughs> this is the way. It's the perfect avenue. Yeah. I think he was just really easy to get along with. I think that's a very Australian mm. trait, to be mm. honest, that we're just all really easy to get along with. And so it kind of made me want to go into fingerprints and then meeting all the other academics that work in fingerprints here. And then even the opportunity to go to Delft, where I met you, I was like, this is yeah. a good field. These people are really good. It's very close knit too. It's really a smallish community when you really dig into it. Yeah, yeah. Your program at UTS, um, some American students might be surprised to hear that there is a PhD program uh, that you could actually get a PhD in forensic science with a focus on fingerprints. Could you talk a little bit about that program? Be an ambassador for UTS, if you don't mind. Yeah, I'll, I'll do a bit of advertisement, some free advertisement <laughs> for the university. So we have a bachelor. It was actually new. I was the first uh, ever cohort to go through our Bachelor of Forensic Science. And we then have a program or two alternate programs, basically, that run uh, an honors program or a master's program that you can do here, whether that be in research or you can also do it by coursework. The honors is only by research, which is actually the avenue mm -hmm. that I went through. And it's about a year. We have some supervisors and a project of your choice or what you work on with that supervisor. Mine was in fingerprinting with Sebastian, which is probably how he convinced me to stay yeah. in that area. And after you do your honors or your masters, it depends kind of what avenue you go down. We have a PhD program here, which is very close and tight knit and we're all in the same office. So we definitely annoy each other probably too much sometimes. But uh, we have a PhD program that's run in pretty much every discipline. We have toxicology. We have a bunch of fingerprinting PhDs some fiber PhDs. Uh, we also have a lovely, my friend Anna, who does weapons mm. or moths in guns. And we affiliate with our local police, so the New South Wales Police Force, and a few of them affiliate with the Australian Federal Police because they're just right. down the road, probably about five minute walk from here. And it's a little bit different, I think, than the way the American PhD program works, but we have stage assessments and then we don't actually defend our thesis in a presentation. It's more of a written thesis that gets reviewed, yeah. kind of like what you would do for a publication. Yeah, I've, I've done a couple of those reviews where I review their thesis, make comments. As you say, they're just basically like a long publication peer review process almost. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Which I think a lot of people, when they hear that, are a little bit taken aback, like, oh, I'm going to have to write this really long thing and have a review. 10 times, but it's probably a bit more of a better process because you get really good at writing and really good at reviewing your own work. Yeah. We do have a presentation still. It's a little bit more focused within like Australia. So we have the faculty come and sit down and talk and listen to what you have to say. And 
they review your presentation. So it's a bit more internal, I would say, than kind of an external sure. defense. Sure. And you have some real superstars, too, in the program. You've got uh, Xanthi Spindler. You've got Scott Chadwick, of course, Claude Rue, Sebastian Moray. I mean, these are all these are people I know that I always think of superstars in the field. Yeah, definitely. They are absolutely amazing. And they're so good to have somebody like in charge who you can look up to. Yeah. I think if you're going to look into a PhD, that's really what you need to do a PhD is somebody that you can work with and look up to and have a good time with too, mm -hmm. I think. Probably we have a little bit too much fun time with Scott, but that's okay. All right. Well, that's that's. Uh, thank you for sharing that with listeners that may not have known about that program. Who knows? Maybe you might get a few Americans going, you know what? <laughs> I wouldn't mind going to Australia for a couple of years and working on a PhD. Yeah, come down here. It's nice and sunny and we have good beaches, although not really very close to the university, but we have good pubs at least. Yeah, oh, for sure. <laughs> Well, Chiel, uh, you know, Glenn was telling me about these different uh, talks that you saw down in Australia. Why don't you kind of introduce us to the presentation you made at that conference, the transversal study? So this was the very first part of my PhD, the very first long, long part of my PhD. And I actually took a little bit of a deep dive into finger mark quality assessment, particularly scales. That's essentially what I work with in my PhD. There was an objective side to it, and I am starting to dip my toes into that area, but it was a little bit new when I first came in, so I stuck with uh, the easiest one that I could, which was the scales, which at the time I thought was easy, but now I realize it definitely is not. And essentially what I did was I looked manually through a lot of papers from January of 1998 to October of 2022, and I pulled out every scale that has ever been used in a study in research oh. and finger marks and had a look at the way that we were using these scales, what were we using them for, how many of them were being used, especially looking at, obviously, talking about in Delft, the International Fingerprint Research Group. They have some guidelines where they recommend some scales. And I just wanted to see actually how many of those scales were being used and how often. And so basically, I've crawled and looked through a bunch of scales and just figured out some answers as to what kind of the landscape was looking like to be able to move into the next part of my PhD, which was trying to create a good set of guidelines for how to perform uh, finger mark quality analysis for research. So that that's actually a, a great stopping point for a second, because a lot of our listeners are used to us talking about comparisons, and we've talked about conclusion scales before mm -hmm. on the podcast. And we don't often get into visualization enough. So if you could explain to the listeners what, what you're referring to as scales and the existence of these different kinds of visualization processing assessment type scales. Yeah, definitely. I think it's hard to tell the difference. And it took me a really long time to try to figure that out as well. But I like to group it as we have that, what you were talking about, that identification, that comparison using it to make conclusions and you're using a scale, let's say, to say a mark is suitable for comparison, mm -hmm. or maybe you're using one to test the efficiency of that examiner. But the other side to that is what we do in research is we're actually looking to see if the technique is working. So how well does a technique work and how can we measure how well it's working? And so we use these scales. So probably the best example I can give you is there's a scale called the cast scale. And it's just basically just a very simple zero to four scale where we take every mark that we make when we use a technique in research and 
let's say we're testing in dandione and in some evaluative sense. And we take all those images and we score them from this zero to four. And the best being the four, the worst being the zero. And it can tell us exactly how many of them are scoring well, how many of them are scoring not so well. And it's essentially just a measurement of the quality that we're producing with these techniques. So a bit more about technique effectiveness sure. than detection is what we like to call it rather than that comparison kind of side. Right. So again, for listeners that maybe don't either do processing or even some of our layperson listeners, if you are testing a new development technique, a new chemical that could develop latent fingerprints on surfaces, and you're not sure if it's as good as the current chemical, you do a bunch of different tests comparing the two. And if the new chemical scores on average on a zero to four, like a 3.6, and the old chemical only scored as high as 3.1, you might be able to make an indication that this new chemical seems to quote unquote outperform right. the original chemical. Yeah, definitely. I like to put it in the way of like, let's say for a layperson or somebody who does comparison or something along those lines is when you make an identification, you're saying it's you know of good quality enough to be able to make that identification. Whereas in detection, we don't really use that right. identification definition. So we, or the people originally, not me, I haven't been in the industry long enough to say that, we have created this kind of other avenue to say that it's good quality. So that's kind of what we're looking for right. is which one is the best quality and which one could be the best quality and how do we know that? Right. And so from what you just said there, just because something is good quality doesn't necessarily mean it's identifiable. And that's probably a really important takeaway from the research was that you were seeing sort of different purposes for these scales. Some were focused more on quality assessment, how clear is the ridge detail, whereas others were well, is it actually developing identifiable or comparable fingerprints? And that's got to be a pretty important finding as you are comparing these and an important aspect of what is the purpose of the scale? Yeah, definitely. I think probably the number one thing that I took away from this was the fact that people were adapting and creating new scales mm -hmm. because they were trying to answer different questions, basically. Right. And you're exactly right. Like when an operational facility probably uses a scale, all they're really looking for is, is it suitable for comparison or not? They're not generally trying to look for if it has bad background development or if it has bad contrast or, you know, the technique is terrible. Sure. They're more looking to see, okay, is the mark good or not? Right. But and, in And those, that might be related. They might be correlated. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And so I think Probably the number number one takeaway from what I've found is that we're making these not because we don't like what we're using. We're making them because they don't suit the purpose that we're trying to answer. Sure. Interesting. So how did you end up choosing this topic as you know what you're going to jump into as part of beginning all the, this research that you're doing? Like how, how did this, before we jump into all the specific details of it, how did you end up choosing this topic? So when I did my internship actually with Sebastian, I think he had a little interest in this to begin with, but that was the first time I actually ever used a scale ever. We don't teach the students what a scale is until about probably their third year. And not everybody learns how to do it. If they get a finger mark project, they might learn how to do it, but not everybody does. And so I was lucky enough to get the opportunity to do so. And when I was doing my honours, I approached Seb and asked do you have any projects? And he recommended this one and I didn't really understand it to begin with. But as I kind of got through it and the first time I ever used the scale and started using it, I was a little bit like, yeah, I don't know if this is the best way to represent what mm -hmm. we're looking at. 
And it kind of like tumbled a little bit from there. And in my honors, I looked less at, you know, what are we doing and more, how are we using the scale? So I've got a bunch of people to assess some finger marks with different grading scales and just had a look at how much people were agreeing and things like that. But just a general kind of understanding in my honors. And then I took it and ran with it in my PhD because I think it gave me a bunch of ideas. And so I think I was lucky enough to be able to be introduced to this topic quite early on, which a lot of people can't say the same when they're doing their PhD. They kind of get into a new area and they're like, okay, I'll give it a go. But I got lucky enough that I kind of knew a little bit more before I got into it. Well, you know, run us down a few of these scales that are, that are out there that you know, different research papers have used over the past 25 years in measuring quality of latents from these different processing techniques. You know, what, what's, what's out there? What's been published? So we've got the nice grouping of the IFRG scales. So that includes the CAR scale, which I went through before, which was that zero to four. We also have the UNAL scale, which comes from Switzerland. It unfortunately is not used very often, which is the number one thing I found. It's a very good scale. I just I'm not sure. I can't comment on why people aren't using it, but it's a zero to three and it's about probably a little bit similar to what the cast is. It just has a little bit of a longer description in each category. And then you have the UC, which it actually does a different kind of effect than the other two. Mm -hmm. So the University of Canberra scale came from Canberra, the lovely Chris Leonard mm -hmm. and some of his students made this one. Basically what it does is it's comparing two finger marks together. So there's a system called a split mark method. And so you take three finger marks and you deposit them and they'll cut mm. them in half and they will uh, enhance one side with one technique, enhance the other side with another technique, and then they'll pop them back together. And this UC scale basically indicates which side is performing best. So it's like a negative scale to a positive scale. So about negative two to positive two. Yeah, it's, it's, it reminds me of an eye test. Better one, better two, better two, better three. And you're just... Is this one or that one better? Plus one, plus two, minus one, minus two. And then you're just, as you say, evaluating them side by side, not individually grading each finger mark. Yeah, exactly. It's a much quicker process. Yeah. And I'm like, it's not as fun as an eye test where you actually <laughs> seem to look at things getting better. Sometimes it gets worse. but <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's the one that, that jumped out at me as I don't know, the one that just made the most sense to me. Because you're, mm -hmm. you're eliminating a lot of the variability that may come from every different touch that might be made across the sample because the touch happens at the same time and you cut it in half and, and you, you're now just comparing really apples to apples for each pair of, um, of each split pair as it went through these different processing techniques. But, yeah. you know, as you said, you know, there's been all these adaptations and one-off scales that have just been made up for each individual paper. Yeah, definitely. Uh, a lot of people add things on, bring things in. They also create new ones. Unfortunately, there's a lot of them that are just generally new. And so they're adapted quite a lot. Every single one of them, even the comparison ones. Yeah, I, I find it pretty interesting from your data that you looked at roughly 700, 800 papers or so. And about half of them had no scale at all. That I mean, I found that very surprising. Yeah, that was the number one thing that I was very confused about. I started doing the meta-analysis and I collected all of the scales and there was about 300, 400 scales that were used over that from 1998. And then I suddenly was like, but what are the other papers doing? So I had to go back and search again and sit there for hours and hours on my computer. I feel like I need better classes <laughs> now. 
And the number one thing that people are using is no scale whatsoever. So they're essentially just, and what I generally found with those publications was it was a individual finger mark that they were just showcasing or let's say grouping Mm -hmm. of maybe six or seven finger marks. And they would just say they were good quality. That's all. Right. They wouldn't infer how good if the technique was actually successful. And so you couldn't really make a comparison between what they were doing and somebody else. Right. And then of the other half that did have scales, as Eric pointed out, the number one thing was they made up their own scale for that particular study. Or they took another scale and maybe modified it. But in in any event, they weren't using one of the standardized three that you mentioned, the UNEAL scale, the UC scale, or the CAST scale. Yeah, so... Obviously, those nice three that we just categorized together, which I feel quite bad because they're good on their own, I promise. They're guidelines, essentially. We recommend them. And even here at UTS, when I have students, I often recommend one of those scales to them. But it turns out a lot of people don't use them. And it was actually lovely at IAFS. I got to meet a bunch of different people. I got to meet a lovely girl called Esther from the Swedish police. And she didn't actually even know that the IFRG Mm -hmm. guidelines were a thing. And so she... It was so great to talk to her because she was like, I would love to just know how to perform grading. Yeah. We create our own because we don't actually know what these are. I think the other data point I took away from was a graphic that you showed of where all these novel <laughs> scales are coming from. I was going to bring up the same <laughs> page. Yeah. Well, so, uh, Tineo, in looking at the, the different countries, which country most used the, the CAST scale system? So the UK for the cast. I wish, uh, which country was, was like, would most use the UC scale? Australia. And then which country would most use the UNIL scale? Switzerland. Well, obviously. And then which country most published research that just made up their own system? Unfortunately, the United States. <laughs> Not surprising, you know. Hey, you know, do your own thing, man. Yes. We have 50 United States. And we do our own thing. It's so much in the American DNA to do this oh, is yeah. the American, this, and not just the American thing, but this is the Minnesotan way we're doing it, And this is the Texan way we're doing it. And here in Florida, we're doing our own damn thing. It's so funny to look at this graph. Yeah, when I, it first came up, I was like, oh, you got to love them over there. <laughs> <laughs> I did it at one point by state. And I have to say a few of the states that you mentioned were uh, very popular mm-hmm. yeah. for mm-hmm. their novel scales. I think one thing that did surprise me was that there were a number of novel scales in the UK. That was actually pretty surprising to me because I would have thought that the bulk of the research is coming from the home office there, which would have used the CAST scale, and that would have been fairly consistent. But it doesn't seem like that way from your data. Yeah, that was probably the most confusing part of that geographical analysis because I was like, okay, it's very obvious we're using the scales because they come from our country. And, you know, we love our good country pride, especially Australia. So mm-hmm. that wasn't the UC was not a surprise. But the UK was very prominent. They used a lot of novel. I actually had to remove. So the car scale was the earliest and it came out in about 2004. So I actually removed anything in those uh, graphs from earlier than 2004 because I thought maybe that might be swaying in a little bit because there was nothing else around back then. They had to use what uh, they were doing. Mm-hmm. But it still just had a lot of novel scales. And I just, I'm not entirely sure why that might be. I don't know if it's because maybe they don't like the car scale 
it could also be because they're trying to answer different questions or rightly what you said, it comes from the home office, but it could also be other institutions in the UK using different things. And so the home office is holding the majority of that car scale use, but other institutions are taking it. But yeah, if I had to bet, I'd say that it's maybe the folks closest to the home office are using that cast scale, but you know, any research done, say in Scotland, they're like, oh, we don't want to do the, we don't want to listen to what they're saying down in London. Hey, we're going to do our own thing. It's just similar kind of separate states, separate countries as in the U.S., but yeah. enough to show up here. But I, I don't know for sure. Just a thought. I mean, it, it could be universities too. And I think that's another thing where perhaps students at the universities, if they're, especially if they're not being taught by people who are active in the field, maybe they've got, you know, a little research project on the side that's part of some chemistry or whatever, and they need to publish, they may not be aware of the existence of the scales. That was actually one of the big reasons I wanted to Neil mm. to come on, because I would really like to make a plea to researchers and publishers and even our newest editor of the JFI, Alice White, congratulations, Alice, that publications, and especially in JFI, need to really be following these standard scales, at least one of them, since they're available. And I'd like to see more publications follow these guidelines for testing these chemicals. It's a, it's a great standardized process that very knowledgeable people in this discipline, in the visualization part, and put a lot of input into the use of these scales and how to conduct for validations of new chemicals. And it'd be nice to see publishers sort of almost enforcing those standards going, look, if you want this published, you need to make sure that this research is following these standardized scales because because we've got this wonderful <laughs> student in Australia who's pointing out that no one's following the standard scales and they sometimes have no scales whatsoever. And I like to see a change there. Tennille, your thoughts? Yeah, I definitely agree 100%. Obviously, the end of my PhD will focus a little bit more on trying to get some guidelines out there. So hopefully one day in the near future, maybe publication, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, it'd be lovely just to be able to get that reach for those guidelines and to be able to help people and in my mind, and I think a lot of people, I've had a few IFs, they came up and asked me, you know, if I don't use a scale and if I don't use the standardized scale, or if I previously had used a different scale, is, does that mean my work is not valid? And, and that's mm. definitely not true mm-hmm. because we use techniques. Like I love to use the example of we had DFO for many years and then we moved to Indandione and we continue to use these techniques and we change them and we get better ones. And it's just the exact same process. We're just getting better at what we're doing. We're getting better at research. We're getting better at doing comparisons. We're making new techniques and new methods. And it's the same with the scale. We can improve sure. and we can standardize and we can make these guidelines. And so I think having that cross-comparison ability with having those guidelines and actually using them, it will really, really help our research. Like it's going to really strengthen the output of what comes out of finger mark detection research. Yes. And speaking of new techniques and getting better, what are your thoughts on moving away from the human assessment mm-hmm. towards automated methods, right? And Eric, and I'm sure you can talk about various kinds of software that maybe some companies you know might have, but any kind of automated process of image quality assessment or software can do some of this more consistently and perhaps even in some ways more accurately than perhaps the human subject matter expert. Yeah, I had definitely do not have anything against objective. I'm, I'm slowly learning the objective way at the moment. 
I thought I've got to learn that other side, unfortunately, and no matter how much AI scares the hell out of me, <laughs> but I definitely think it has a place. We are moving into the machine learning generation and it's something that we're going to have to be able to use and adapt. But I think definitely if we don't fix what we already do, it might impact what we end up doing. And so we perfected the art of comparison and ACEV and we keep working in that area. But if we kind of leave subjective completely behind, it might impact the output mm. that we do. So at the moment, I'm working a little bit on trying to see if you can make the scale itself objective. So mm -hmm. machine learning of different images, learning how to code. It's a very long process. I have absolute so much respect for people who are computer scientists. I think mm -hmm. you are the geniuses of geniuses. And just to see if a machine can simply do what we do. And it's definitely not going to be as accurate as what a human is. There's no way. There's also going to be people that don't want to use machine learning or AI or any type of software. I know if I had to force my students to learn how to use more machine work and more different techniques, they'd probably want to kill me. Mm. So I definitely think we will stick with the scales, at least in university in teaching, mm. uh, probably in postgraduate, but definitely in the undergraduate degrees. And so I definitely think both sides are complementary. I think we need to exercise caution in the way that we implement it. But I definitely think we're headed in that direction, which is a good thing. I like technology. I'm the technology generation, so. Well, so the, uh, you know, I think probably the most widely available tool to measure quality is LQ metric. So in, in going through the, you know, the studies that you went through, you know, granted your focus was on a subjective scale, you know, where there's some expert looking at the ridge detail to, to give it this evaluation zero to four or zero to six or whatever. Did you come across the you know, studies that you excluded because they just, you know, they, you were using this LQ metric scale. Did you see that at all? You know, wh why do you think it's been around for 10, 12 years now? Why do you think it isn't used more in this type of research? I did. There's actually four papers. They're very deeply embedded in the 400 references. So please do not do that to yourself. But uh, actually four papers in my study that used objective software. However, they also used a subjective system. Mm. A few of them were to compare to see if the objective software could compete with the subjective. The other two, not so much. They were basically just using multiple different quality measurements. But I think I only found two studies that only used objective software. That's excluding any study that was kind of using objective software to measure how successful it might be in comparison to using it as a subjective sure. system. So I think... It probably doesn't have a lot of reach. It took us here in Australia, especially at UTS, quite a long time to get access to it. And I know that's the same for other institutions within Australia who do have some form of finger mark postdoctorate or even study. I know it's within our New South Wales police force. I'm not sure if they use it. I can't comment on what they do. I'm not within that unit. And I assume the AFP have it as well, but I know that they don't use it either. I know that institutions sometimes don't like to use it predominantly because they want an examiner to do it because obviously the examiner is going to be the one that's actually going to do the comparison. I think it depends definitely where you're from and the reach that you have. And, and the fact that a lot of learning that a lot of papers and a lot of publications coming from countries that don't have access even to scales or they don't even know about the IFRG guidelines, I think the reach is going to be harder to push out for the objective systems, they're probably also going to have to be integrated into the guidelines. 
for people to be able to recognize them and use them and things like that. Interesting. Yeah, that was one of my concerns is that you know, one of the reasons is that just it's not available, right? It's, it's hard to get your hands on it to use for research. And if it's not available, then you're going to adapt and figure out some way else to do it. But uh, Glenn, what do you think, Glenn? Is that, is that your kind of feeling as well? If it really comes down to just the availability access to the software? I do think that's part of it. In the United States, we have no excuse. Everybody has access to it in the United States. And I know a few people that have used it in-house, but actually then didn't publish. And Carrie Hall mm -hmm. being one of them, uh, myself and others used it for various things too. But I am surprised that there aren't more agencies that have adopted it. And again, if, if a listener doesn't know what we're talking about, it's effectively, it's a software where you circle the latent print, you push one button, and it gives you a score from zero to 99 based on this computer algorithm assessment of quality of the latent fingerprint. And then you can run latent prints that go through one chemical A and get an average score I mean, or distribution. And then you can run latent prints that go through chemical B and get that score and then compare the two distributions or scores and then see if it's performing as well as or better than the current chemical. And there have been publications, one by Pulsifer comes from I'm from Penn State, who has recommended this as a method for evaluating and validating new chemicals. But it just hasn't caught on. And I think Daniil's right. It's just the people that need to know about this and who are publishing on these chemicals are not part of the visualization community. And so they, they're not even aware that there's a cash scale. They're not aware that there's anything. They just they're doing a test and they want to get a publication. And that might be their only publication in their entire career. And that's it. Like that's all they ever do. So they're just not part of the community and there isn't the enforcement mechanism from the journals to say, look, we appreciate the work you've done here, but we need to sort of standardize this process. And that's just not there either. Is that, is, do you think that's fair to Neil? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think it's not really considered standard practice or it's not considered standard practice at this university either. We still use subjective systems even though I am also looking into objective, I still recommend subjective systems. We do it to the students. Obviously, when the students then might end up in PhDs or they might end up in academic positions, they kind of learn on that system as well. And so I think probably ingrained in us to use subjective systems and we haven't been ingrained into that idea of using the LQ metric or using any of the type because I know there's an edemia software as well. And so I think nothing has just quite pushed through yet. It's like scales. They started in the early 60s and 70s, but there was maybe only one being used every three years. Right. And so it's the same kind of principle. I think it will definitely have a period where it immediately takes off and people are suddenly using it everywhere, but it just hasn't kind of hit that push point yet. So, Tanil, you said that this was the first part of your research. So why don't you walk us through the second part? where you're really doing a deep dive on these scales and what they represent. Yeah, so I did a, a nice survey, which I sent out to some very lucky people. I feel very bad. It was quite a long survey. I'm <laughs> very sorry to anybody who's listening who had to do that survey. And I essentially wanted to actually understand what we are actually doing or what are people trying to answer? What are they trying to get out into these scales? What are they using them for? And so I kind of just asked, you know, which IFRG scales are you using? Are you using more objective software? Are you using subjective? 
and what parameters are you using within uh, the scales that you use. And then I actually asked, and I wanted to see if maybe if we didn't get them to score like we normally do from a zero to four or kind of a categorical grading is what we call it. Once if we let them just continuously do it. So I just gave them a quality parameter. So let's say something like ridge detail or like how visible are the ridges. And I just gave them a slider score from zero to a hundred. So how consistent would they actually be? Is everyone going to be pretty accurate to each other? And would that be a better way to score? It is not a better way to score. I'll spoiler that one. <laughs> I made big mistakes. <laughs> mm -hmm. And basically based on this survey and based on all this back knowledge, trying to make some guidelines into how to use scales. And, and I definitely don't think a lot of people generally think that I'm going to make this amazing brand new scale that's going to look completely different. I think it's likely to look something very similar to what we see now because we're used to what we're using and I don't want to change it. Some of it is great the way it is. It just needs that set of standardization of how to perform the grading and even how to give the data analysis. So mm. I was speaking to uh, Dan Hockey from Canada who oh, released yeah. that an awesome paper about guidelines in statistical analysis of the car scale and he was helping me kind of to see how to end up with some good data and create something that you can showcase with the work and so kind of giving a step-by-step -step guide of like here's a scale this is how you use it and this is the output or something similar that you should get at the end product and what did you find from the survey that examiners were really focused on. So what were some of the characteristics that seemed most important to the human subject matter expert? So this was my favorite bit because the examiners and the researchers were very different. And for anybody that doesn't know the distinction between the two or the way I distinct them, a researcher is somebody that's usually in an academic position. There's a few in the industry. They work in their research units. And then there are examiners. So those are the people that are doing those comparison works and casework is generally what we say here in Australia. Sometimes you can be both. Sometimes you're one or the other. I had a, probably a lot of researchers do it. I had a lot of examiners. They were lovely, but I had a lot of people who were both. Mm -hmm. And in particular, the researchers were actually looking a little bit more on what we call image quality parameters. So that's things like background development, contrast. So things that have nothing really to do with the finger mark itself. It's kind of looking at how well the technique is. Mm -hmm. And then the examiners were a lot more into the ridge kind of level. So ridge detail, ridge flow, if the mark was suitable for comparison, that's mm -hmm. exactly what they were trying to look at. And also very interestingly, they liked knowing the amount of mark present, whereas the researchers were not so fussy on that. Uh, that actually is interesting. I missed that uh, little thing from the presentation. That, that's pretty cool. Yeah, very different. I'm glad they were different, but at the same time, I'm like, I was hoping you would be answering the same questions so it could keep my work nice and even. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's the beauty of the research is that you're looking at their end purpose, right? The, the practitioner casework examiner wants to identify more fingerprints, whereas the researcher wants exactly as you said, the sensitivity of the, the technique and the, the background separation, because if you have a lot of background noise, you can't get good contrast. Again, there's overlap between the two, but I, it's just, it's so clear that they're very focused on their end game, their end result. Yeah, definitely. I think in a weird way, that's kind of where all that subjectivity comes from, is that you kind of come in with that predisposition of this is what I'm looking for. And this is the answer that I have. 
Yeah. And I hope that this thing or whatever I'm looking at meets that end goal. Do you think that studies need to be very clear then about who does the assessment, whether or not it was done by caseworking fingerprint examiners, students, or researchers? Is that then a really important aspect of publication? I definitely think so. What I actually found, and especially with how I was talking about, I got some them to continuously grade some finger marks. Those people who had less experience, especially the researchers, Mm-hmm. They were very, very variable in comparison to the other uh, levels of experience. So anybody essentially who had less than three years of experience, they were grading way different than everybody else. And so I think you definitely should be open and honest about who is using the grading scale for you. You can use one, you can use two, you can use three. There's no set measurement at the moment of how many people should be using it. But I definitely think if you're getting a student to examine marks, which you can, that's totally okay. I've done it multiple times when I was a student. I still do it and I'm technically a student, I guess. But they haven't seen finger marks. They haven't seen thousands of them over and over again. And so they're definitely going to give a very different response than what an examiner is who's, you know, been an expert in the field for 10 years and they can see a mark with, let's say, you know, a tiny, tiny amount of a finger mark showing no core, no delta, but they could probably say, oh, I could make an identification on that. So they're going to be very different things. Looking at one of the samples here in your uh, PowerPoint presentation, you know, first glance, it's, it's like an entire finger, but, you know, there's an overlap on the left, there's low contrast on the right, you know, there's some good stuff above the core, good stuff below the core, but connecting the two might be a little tricky. And you go from this kind of initial assessment where you're looking at the image, you may be then looking at maybe the the low contrast over the overlapping ridge detail, but from an examiner, you're, you know, whether or not you can feel you can connect the top and bottom, I think might be a, a big deciding factor in, in having a, you know, quite a large difference even between, um, quality assessments for that print, just the different things people look at. Yeah, definitely. I think we're subjective in the, the things that we look at, and that's probably why we all make different decisions and things like that. And, and it also is very reliant on the scale as well. So if you have a mark that's so patchy and dotty and it's nothing is present and all you're asking for is how much ridge detail is present. If it's missing bits, obviously a researcher, especially somebody who doesn't have a lot of experience, they might look at that and go, oh, okay, well, I don't think it fits with that description. But somebody who's probably been in the field a long time, an examiner, they might be like, oh, well, it's okay if a bit of it's missing, I can still use it. So it'll probably score higher. I can totally see that. So I, w- I was wondering, Tennille, in your observations, were there any classes of chemicals that seemed particularly problematic with researchers? I mean, one thing that kind of jumps out at first blush to me might be fluorescent compounds that, that create a fluorescent finger mark. Any, any observations there about the use of these scales or the photography or various issues And any recommendations, again, for publishers when accepting and reviewing these kinds of articles? I think fluorescent techniques, the general ones in dandion, you know, the things that we see all the time and a lot of people compared to, I don't think we have a lot of issues with those fluorescent techniques, but I do think they showcase a little bit more than what some of the scales can suggest, especially the car scale. Sometimes I would be a little bit wary about using that scale in particular for fluorescent techniques. They're very, very background heavy, or they can be, Mm -hmm. and it can be very hard to distinguish that with those type of scales. 
But I definitely think a good recommendation probably going forward before any other thing and before, let's say, if there is any further guidelines or anything like that, is that if you just show that some images against the scores that you give, sometimes that's just the best way to do it because at least we know how you got to that conclusion. And so if you're showing us at least you know, somebody who's reading it or anyone who's reviewing it can be able to understand that you do know that there is a difference between the scores that you're using. Sure. As we're wrapping up here, what do you think the way forward is? You know, if you could kind of wave a wand and skip ahead five years, is it, you know, the community settling on a, a single subjective scale method? Is it the development and availability of an objective scoring method that's been validated? you know, and deemed suitable for this purpose, a combination of both or or some other direction? I think in my mind and currently what I'm working on, especially in the subjective, I'll get to the objective at the end, um, think that we probably need a scale that can be universally used, but adapted, but recommendations for the way that we adapt it. Because as a community, it's very clear that we like to adapt things. But if we kind of give suggestions in the way to do it, I think that's definitely going to alleviate some of the issues that we're seeing with all these changes and all these different creations and different variations of quality. So we're not actually all measuring the exact same thing. But if we have something that is able to have that comparative aspect, but also allow some of that adaptation, I definitely think that's going to help. And I definitely think maybe focusing on especially how do we measure quality in different areas and different questions of finger mark research. So In the IFRG guidelines, they talk about a thing of like phases of finger mark research, and it's about like a phase one to four kind of system. And I think each phase probably needs a different quality measurement or a different way that we measure quality. And so I think guidelines should probably encompass how can we use this scale, but how can we also use it when we're answering all of these different questions? And so probably I'd love to have some guidelines. Hopefully in five years, I'll have finished my PhD. I hope so anyway. (laughs) You better. I better, yeah, hopefully mid next year. So, (laughs) and have some guidelines surrounding that and basically a procedure or a little bit more of a definitive procedure. I definitely hope in five years that we're absolutely gunning for a great objective scale. It might not be perfectly validated by that point, but I'm hopeful that it's going to be something really, really amazing and it's widespread and we can give it to basically anybody at that point. It doesn't have to be, you know, regulated by particular institutions or anything like that. I think if we're going to get an objective scale, it definitely has to be open to a lot of different people. Mm. That's an important point too. If a vendor does develop a very specific software, although I imagine the vendor would be happy if everybody purchased a software, that's usually not going to always be the case. So that's an important point you're making. Yeah, definitely. I think the world uh, is run by money, unfortunately. And yeah. So, yeah. I, I'm learning that the hard way. You get older and then you start paying rent and you're like, oh, God, <laughs> is this what my parents were going through while I was a kid? <laughs> yeah. Well, before we let you go, I've got just a funny little story for listeners. And you correct me if I'm wrong in my facts, but this is how I remember mm-hmm. it. We were in Delft and I was probably complaining to someone and talking about research and particularly one of the things that I lament about in the United States is that I run into so many masters and even sometimes PhD students and I hear what they have to do to accomplish their program and get their degree and compared to students in other countries that have to do so much more and so much more good research. It always bugs me that the common masters research is, yeah, I did a survey. I did a survey. 
And I kept like talking about, I cannot stand how students basically get their degrees from doing a survey. And in my mind, like an hour later after talking to Neil about this, Neil gets up there and says, well, I basically did a survey as part of my presentation. And uh, screw Glenn and his thoughts on this. And uh, what's your recollection there, Neil? I do remember shouting you out. I do. Rem- I remember a lot of people laughing and nodding their heads. So <laughs> I definitely was sitting there when you were saying it. And I was like, oh, I'm definitely going to pull him up in my presentation. But I was like, I promised Glenn I did other work. I didn't just do the survey. <laughs> yes. No, your your research is great, obviously. I'm, I'm a Thank fan you. of it. But it, do- it does bother me that all they have to do is basically a single survey, write about it, and then bam, you have a master's. And that does not seem fair to me because you're doing so much more. Yeah, I think if it was somebody that was like a year long, we do a few honors students that do surveys and, and they do some other things beyond that. It's definitely not just a survey. But I do think that in a PhD, you probably need a bit more sustenance. Yeah, I, I would agree. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, yeah, that that going through and reviewing over a thousand papers qualifies as the slightly more than a survey. <laughs> yeah, they owe me a really good beer after that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was very funny, though. I, I enjoyed that. That is funny. <laughs> I, and I think we, that's that's come up before on the podcast, too. So I'm, you know, not surprised that you said it. And oh. as you're telling the story, I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't remember half the things we talk about on the podcast. I, and that's how you know it's genuine. Be, and I don't have like a podcast personality because I don't remember what we've said at the bar or <laughs> hanging out or on the podcast. So, yes, that's what's coming out of my mouth. I'm glad that this was the most memorable thing about me that you remember is me uh, roasting you about my survey. Yeah, no, I really appreciated that. <laughs> no, I, that's definitely one way to, to be memorable for Glenn. No, is, for sure. Uh, is call him out on something. Absolutely. <laughs> it's who I am. It's it's in my nature. All right. Well, Neil, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. I'm excited. Glenn has, has been kind of nonstop talking about all these people he met at the conference down in Australia and all the, the guests that we're going to have over the next couple of weeks and months. Uh, so, you know, glad to get Hugh here and, uh, and looking forward, Glenn. I mean, heck, I'm now even more disappointed that I missed that conference. If this, this is, you know, a sample of, of the presentations that were, uh, that were down there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. You have to come down to Australia. Come visit us. It's nice and sunny here. So that's yes. I'm just looking for the right opportunity. You know how I can justify it to my bosses. It's uh, one way or the other. I'll make it happen. Just show them Yahoo Serious, and I'm sure they'll they'll be ready to send you. Oh man, does she even know what we're talking about? Young Einstein, you mean? Yeah, I know what Young Einstein is. Okay, okay good. Just checking. I'm no. I'm not that young. Come on, I know who the captain in two years. Okay. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. An old soul. She's an old soul. Yeah. I'm like an 80-year-old woman stuck in a 20-something-year-old's body. <laughs> well, uh, if you have any questions for us or any questions you want us to forward on to Tennille, you, know, you can email us, glenn at eliteforensicservices.com or eric at rayforensics.com. And uh, also go to our webpage, uh, com. You can head over to the, the merch store, which we still need to get updated with new shirts and designs, but you know, that'll be coming soon. There's still stuff already there, including our most popular design for t-shirts and mugs that have to do with the very tips of fingers. So it's, you know, you know we, we did mention, but you know, we're just talking about the, the conference presentation, but this is published in Forensic Science International, right? Yes. Uh, it's in FSI. If anybody, uh, wants 
to get access to it or you want to email me about it, you can find it on the FSI website or otherwise email me at tenille.hanna at uts.edu.au. It's my uni email, so it should hopefully come through. Um, but definitely happy to let everybody have a read of it and see the many references that I probably cried over too much. Why don't you go ahead and spell that email address just to help people out? So that's T-E-N-E-I-L dot H-A-N-N-A at U-T-S dot E-D-U dot A-U. Perfect. H. Oh, those Australians. <laughs> that's all the Brits, yeah. I, I blame the British for that, not even the Australians. H's and Z's. Exactly. Well, um, the opinions expressed on the show are those of the speaker, not necessarily anyone that they work for. And with that, we'll close out the show and have a great holiday and talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a great week. Bye, guys. Thank you so much for having me.